And normally, and what we will do today, as we usually do, is to explain the passage of Scripture that we are dealt with today. As we go through the book of Luke, we go verse by verse, and uh, if need be, word by word, to uh, tear it apart, put it back together in our thoughts of what the meaning is in that. And uh, this is God that actually is speaking. He uses a frail voice here, frail individual, to help us learn about who He is and what He's about. We uh, do expository preaching, but have you ever noticed that in expository preaching there are always topics? Have you ever noticed that? We go from week to week doing verse by verse, and at the same time the topics are there. Uh, for instance, Chapter 16 dealt with uh, wealth. You know, a rich man at Lazarus. Or there was a rich man who had a steward. You know, so he uh, gave us wisdom on what riches and wealth and money and possessions are about. And that was basically the whole chapter. Well, as we move into chapter 17, we have another topic today. Um basically about sin, forgiveness, and faith. Now, I have a title called Scandalon. You might be wondering what that is. Or you might remember the old uh, Michael Card song called Scandalon. It's kind of borrowed from that, but actually borrowed from the text here because that's actually the word that's in there and we will uh, be dealing with that in, in a few moments. Um, Throughout the book of Luke, we have seen the Pharisees just disdain and they hate Jesus. And it's mounting, isn't it? As we just proceed further, as it gets closer to the cross, he's marching to the cross, he knows it, getting closer to Jerusalem. It's like weeks away. It's ready to crest at its all-time high. The Pharisees' hatred. They accuse. They discredit Jesus. Uh... One of the reasons that he hung out with sinners and he ate with them. That was a disgrace to them. The thing is, he was offering salvation to these people who were lost. And so were the Pharisees. They didn't think so. They didn't think they were lost at all. Why do they hate him so much? His teachings just incriminate themselves and their self righteousness. He hits precisely right at their hypocrisy and exposes everything in front of them. And they hate that. They never have an answer for Him. They try to. He always has the answer for them. Now, the previous chapter in chapter 16 is about the subject of being money lovers. And that's what the Pharisees were about. They were about money. They loved money. The love of money is the root of all evil. So, the love of money, that is. So, he told these stories. And they were designed to hold up before their spiritual eyes the besetting sin that they actually had. And really what that sin was, was their self-righteousness. It's all about self. Self-interest. And... Their sin kept them from seeing and understanding God's law. 
all at the same time, they were protectors of the law. What, what is the Old Testament? At least they thought they knew it. So he closed that passage out in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had been blinded by his, I guess you could say, wealth that he had. He was blinded by that, by having that. He was self-righteous. It was about him. Present wealth can keep one from seeing what truth is and what eternal destinies are about. He represented, guess who? Pharisees. Pharisees were like that rich man who went to Hades. Lazarus went to be in heaven with God forever. Jesus turned the system that they had upside down, inside out. They hated it. Uh, We will see that in this message today. That Jesus is concerned also not only for where the Pharisees are at, but the disciples. Not just the twelve, but all the learners, all the people that would be following Him. Some of them are believers, some are not. But they're checking Him out. A lot of them like what He has to say. They have a great interest in it. And what He's saying here to His disciples, these people, don't live and teach like the Pharisees. See, they had always looked up to the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders, weren't they? They were the elite. If anybody is holy, it's them. So, all of a sudden, Jesus, and it's not all of a sudden He's been saying all along, but He's saying, don't listen to what they have to say and what they do. That's what He'll be getting at today. He says, they're leading people astray. Now, they were saying the same thing about Jesus. So who has the truth? Either Christ or the religionist. And we know that Christ is the one who has that truth. So, you know, there's a contrast that we see here in the light of the criticism of the Pharisees in Luke 16. We see that there's a teaching here that goes a long way of how we too can understand how to live the Christian life. And that's what he's saying here in chapter 17 to the disciples, the followers. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple, you are followers. There were the apostles, but there are the followers, the learners. And they're all followers in that sense. Uh, Again, could be a difficult chapter, as I've been saying, from week to week. Because sometimes the flow seems to be disrupted here. And I will tell you, in the book of Luke, it all flows. It flows all the way to the cross and to the resurrection of Christ. The church following Christ. That's the flow. And uh, if you were looking at chapter 16, you have rich man and Lazarus, and then all of a sudden you have this thing about sin and forgiveness, faith, Many commentators say what Jesus is doing here now as He goes into 17, it's really kind of just strung together, disconnected, disjointed. He's just saying some things that are good things, but they don't have to be connected with where we have been and where we're going. Now that disrupts me and my, uh, my 
thinking. And when you look at expository preaching and teaching, it connects together. It makes sense. So that's what we're going to try to do today to see this flow. Uh, there is a flow of thought. At first it might be subtle, but he had just dealt with the Pharisees and the religious hypocrisy, right? Now he turns to the disciples and gives a warning. He says, don't be like this. This false teaching, this self-centered, superficial religion of the Pharisees, he's correcting in this warning here that he's giving today here. Uh, he's saying, okay, listen, Pharisees, they can make you stumble. Pharisees are a stumbling block. Don't you be a stumbling block to anybody. Then it gives instructions on how to deal with forgiveness. If people sin, then what are we to do with that? And then you have the uh, uh, disciples say, increase our faith. Why are they saying that? It sounds like it's disjointed, doesn't it? We look at it today and we'll see how it just joins together and makes a lot of sense. So let's let's take our scripture, our Bibles, or phones, or what do you have? <laughs> Notebooks. Let's read uh, God's Word. Luke 17, 1 through 6. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around the neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith then. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray. Father, what a passage you've given. Thank you. It was written for our instruction. Not only to the disciples 2,000 years ago, but it right now as we look at this. This is something that works in our own lives. And so, Lord, we look to Your Spirit to work in our hearts so that we can be like Christ. So that we can have that kind of faith that's already been given to us to believe and do what you say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, with that being said, that long introduction, it's really about what we're going to be doing today here. Um... First part's dealing with stumbling blocks or scandalon. It's found in verse 1 and 2. It says to his disciples, It's inevitable. Stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. Right off the heels of what Luke has recorded about 
the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Greek word translated from that word stumbling blocks. You see that in verse 1? By the way, there are different bulletins here that have, have the outline in there. Of course, the outline is there too. If anyone doesn't have one, I'm sure there's extra ones, especially today, just sitting on chairs. So if you like to, to have that, it just kind of gives a guide of what we're going to do. That's what this outline is about. It's just to help us. It's not inspired at all. Right? Just something that can help us learn really what this is. Stumbling block. What's that? Scandalon. Scandalon is actually, it's uh, originally, it was the bait stick and a trap. And so when an animal hit that bait stick, guess what happens? It triggers the trap and then traps or ensnares that animal in there. Kind of like, I remember the rabbit traps my brother used to make, you know, the wooden boxes that were kind of long. And it would be set up that the rabbit would come, take whatever was there, what, a carrot? <laughs> you know, and hit, as soon as he had hit that, boom, and the door goes down, he's in the trap. He's ensnared. That would be the original meaning of the scandal on. You say, well, how does this work in this passage here? Well, it, it, intrig- it, it intriggers a, a, a trap. It comes to refer spiritually to any, I guess you could say, enticement, temptation to sin. In your own lives, everybody has definitely experienced temptation. We do all the time, don't we? We can choose to sin. We can choose not to sin. You can choose Christ on your own. And if you're a sinner, you will continue to sin. But if you're a Christian, you can defeat sin. God's Word is good for exposing our sin very helpful with the Holy Spirit. He convicts us, but we can be enticed to sin, can't we? What it looks like, feels like, what it smells like, tastes like, whatever. Uh, It's a serious sin here that leads to a defection of faith. We see the term in the Old Testament quite a few times, this word scandalon, or in the Hebrew it would be a different word, it's in the Greek Old Testament that you probably will see that word scandal on. Turn back to the law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14. Old Testament used this thought quite frequently. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Because you're familiar, you say, I'm going to read the Bible through. Get through Genesis, you go, yeah, Exodus, and then Leviticus ends. He gets into all of these weird laws of the Jews and, and all of a sudden we get to stumble over that. But it's there for a purpose. Every word of God is inspired. Well, this makes sense here as we read this. Leviticus 19, 14 says this. You shall not curse a deaf man and place a stumbling block, there's a word, before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. A stumbling block before the deaf, the dumb, the people that you can really trick. He says, don't be a stumbling block. Don't do that. Judges. Right after Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have Joshua, then Judges. 8, 27. You say, hey, we're going too quick here. I can't follow all this. 
That's, that's the purpose of those notes if you want to look at it later. At least you can see the scriptures that we go to. Usually they're the ones that we, we do. Gideon made it into an ephod. This is all the gold rings and gold, whatever people had. They put it together and he made it into an ephod and placed it in, it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare or a stum- stumbling block, a trap to Gideon and his household. Gideon actually made it a what? An idol. And it was a stumbling block to all the people or a snare or a trap for them to sin. So there it is used in the Old Testament. One more. Let's look in Psalm 119. It's about in the middle of your Bible. It's the longest chapter in all the Bible. Psalm 119. I think Ligon Duncan, I'm not sure, I think it was Ligon Duncan that was out at um, one of the conferences, I think it was at Grace Church, and I believe it was him, that, uh, or he's the one that made fun of the guy who did it, but I think it was him. He started reading Psalm 119, and he kept reading and reading, and as he kept reading, people were looking, and, and it's like somebody said, Dickie's going to read the whole thing. <laughs> and he did. You know how many verses there are in Psalm 119? It's all about the Word of God. Every verse there, and if you want to look at it, just look at it for a moment, you'll see every verse is about the Word of God. Right in the middle of your Bible. It's incredible, isn't it? But in verse 165, I'm going to only read one verse there. Those who love your law have a great peace. Does that make sense? Those who love God, who love the law, or love the Word, law is the same thing as the Word of God, and nothing causes them to what? Stumble. We don't stumble when we love God's Word, when we love Him and love His truth. You ever notice that? There's a peace. You don't stumble. Make sense? Okay. In the Bible, sometimes their scandal on is meant in a good way, even though it is it's seemingly ultimately bad, but it was a, there's a stumbling block that means where people tripped over Jesus. They stumble over Jesus. They have a problem with Jesus, at least the biblical Jesus. Some people like the love of Jesus, but whenever you make statements like what we're saying today in Luke 17, or when he talks about rich man and Lazarus, where he talks about Hades or hell and heaven, they stumble over that. I don't want that Jesus. I want the good and loving Jesus who's just you know gentle all the time and he doesn't judge. Well, uh, he's an offense. He was an offense to the Jews. We look in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Look at this. Speaking of what we just said. 1.23, 1 Corinthians. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. That's verse 22. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a what? Stumbling block. And to Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, 
God's people. Both Jews and Greeks have been called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's not foolishness. He is not a stumbling block, but He is power and He is wisdom. But do you see, Jesus is a stumbling block, isn't He? He's a stumbling block. Or a scandal. Remember we called it scandal on? We, we get the English word that comes out of that one called scandal. Or someone has sinned, sinned greatly, and it's a scandal all across the area where people are from. Now, the scandal of the cross. Isaiah, back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 8, 14. The big prophet section. Talking about the Messiah. Isaiah does that. It's the most messianic book in all of the Old Testament. You say, what's messianic? It's Christ. Messiah means in the Old Testament, the Messiah. In the New Testament, who? Christ. Christos. Anointed. Messiah. Bashiach. Anointed. So, Old Testament, Hebrew. New Testament, Greek. Then he, the Messiah, shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, to Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. What? And look at this. And a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Does that go with the illustration that we gave earlier, the definition, a scandal on? A trap, isn't it? And to be ensnared, to stumble over, they get caught, they're enticed by their own self-righteousness, but not the righteousness of the Messiah. So they stumble over Christ. It still goes on today, doesn't it? Most people would not give an ear to the teachings of Christ. Because they know what He's talking about it and they don't want it because their life will be destroyed as far as they're concerned. Not going to intervene in my life, right? And Christ says, yes, you are giving up yourselves to Me to follow Me. Forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow Me. Stumbling block. Look in Luke 20.18. Now this is the book where we're at this morning. And have been for months and months. We'll be for more months. And later on, not too far from us, is Luke 20 and verse 18. Pick it up, verse 17. But Jesus looked at them. He's always teaching. He just gave a parable about the vineyard owner. He looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? You guys know it. The stone which the builders rejected, they became or uh, this became the chief cornerstone. The the stone. The builders Israel rejected that stone. Verse eighteen everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. That's a judgment. 
on the ones who trip over Christ. Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Jesus says this even before His crucifixion here in Luke 20. And you know what He borrowed? Right out of the Old Testament there in verse 17. See, Jesus is the Word of God. He knows the Word because He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So he quotes really something of his own right out of Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus does that often. As does Paul. As does Peter. The rest John. The rest of the writers. Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Romans 9 deals with predestination, election, God's rejection of the unbelievers, God's purpose, and we get into verse 33. He quotes the same way. At the end of verse 32, you'll see the last sentence, they, people of Israel, stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the stumbling block. And here it is, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling. This is the Messiah. Remember we just read it in the Old Testament earlier? And a rock of offense. Did you know that the scandalon is offense? Offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So you have two different people. The ones who stumble over Christ, who don't want him, and the others who believe in him are not going to be disappointed. They do not stumble over Christ. Look at first Peter chapter two, verse six through eight. Still dealing with that stumbling block, aren't we? First Peter two, verse six. For this is contained in Scripture. What he's saying, this is in the Bible. Behold, I lay in Zion, sound familiar? A choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now we just read that, didn't we? In another passage, in Luke. In Romans. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, you have two kinds of people, believers, unbelievers. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. He is the main piece to this whole building. He's the main cornerstone. And verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stumbling block, a scandal on. So Christ is a stumbling block. Now, in our Luke passage, what we did is we kind of went off subject in a way, but we really didn't because we're just showing what stumbling block means Old and New Testament. 
Jesus as a stumbling block. That's a positive sense though, isn't it? There's a negative sense in that people are never to be stumbling blocks. We as Christians are not to be stumbling blocks. And that is what Jesus is speaking about here. He said to His disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It's inevitable. We'll get to that in a moment. But woe to them through whom they come. That's negative, isn't it? Don't you be a stumbling block. Jesus is a stumbling block to people. But you can't be. There are times when the Christian is actually a stumbling block. You say, what? Christians can be stumbling blocks? Well, do you remember Peter? And he says, oh no, Jesus, you don't have to die. Well, if, you know, he's, you know, upbeat. This is positive thinking. You don't have to die. What happens if Jesus doesn't die? We sit here today with our sin not forgiven. There has to be the cross. That was predestined before the foundation of the world that Christ would die for our sins. It has to be. That's what God has foreordained. So, what is Peter saying? No, you don't have to die, Jesus. Not you. You know what Jesus said? He said to him, you are a stumbling block. He said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the thing of God, things of God, but the things of men. Whoa, he even called him Satan. He was inspired by Satan to say that. He says, get behind me. This is God's plan. You are a stumbling block to me, Peter. Actually, he wouldn't call him Peter there, would he? Call him Simon, wouldn't he? Serious consequences would befall the ones who would have made themselves stumbling blocks. And Luke, and in the passage that we're dealing with today, coming off the context of where we have been, the Pharisees have been the most vocal, visible, visual people who have attacked Christ. Everybody knows that. The people have seen that the Pharisees hate Jesus and they're making it very well known to everybody else. They're saying, don't follow Him. And He's saying, don't follow them. They want to discredit Jesus and they want to turn people who are following Jesus back from following Him. They don't want them to follow Him. So, we look at that, we know that uh, these unbelievers, these Pharisees and the way that they would continue would be just like that rich man that we looked at last week who would be destined to hell. And he's saying, you don't want to follow that kind of teaching. So the meaning is right here in the text. Be What it is for people to be a stumbling block, it's behavior that would cause a weaker Christian, or any Christian for that matter, to fall into sin. Look in Romans 14, verse 13. Would you ever want to be a stumbling block to a young believer? Of course you would, would you? Romans 14, 13 says... Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block 
in a brother's way. Don't do something that would make them stumble. You might say a cuss word to an unbel- to a young believer or to a, an older saint, older believer. And that can cause a stumble. You can say something. You can do something that really could cause an offense to someone else. And that's the idea of Romans 14, 13 there. It would be leading someone into uh, a trap. Maybe it would cause them to sin. Maybe you do it and you say, I have the freedom to do this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if it causes a stumbling block for another one and then they get doing into the same trap, they fall into sin. That's not good. Can a Christian do that? Well, we saw what Peter did. Sure. Remember the context here for the most part here in Luke is dealing with the unbeliever. You know, 1 John 2.10, what's the solution? If you're a scandal on if you could be a scandal, what's the solution to it? 1 John 2.10. Don't be a scandal on, right? Two ten says, "The one who loves his brother abides, lives in the light. That's Christ, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So, if you love your brother, you don't want to do anything that would cause a stumbling block to be there. You don't want them to trip, do you? To watch it. We love our brother. We'll not bring an offense into his life. Now we go back to Luke." Let's see if we've covered this so far. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable. Now, we haven't done that word yet. We went to stumbling block, but we didn't use inevitable. So we're on B, uh, number one, right? Here it is in the Greek. In the original Greek, the way that it was written, here's what it is. We say inevitable. They would say, it cannot but be. There's no other way. It is this way. It has to be this way. It will be this way. It can't be any other way. Uh, Easy enough. It's inevitable. That means no matter what, there's going to be stumbling blocks, like it or not. What's he saying here? There's going to be sin. There are all kinds of examples of sin in this world that we live. It leads us away from righteousness. What we want as Christians is what? Righteousness. Because it represents God. If we turn away from righteousness, we're not representing God. We're representing sin. The world is just filled with sin, wickedness, and evil, isn't it? How much of that rubs off even on Christians today? It happens, doesn't it? And he's saying it's inevitable. That is going to happen. And that he's going to say, but, but first of all, we of all generations ever in the history of mankind, as we sit here today, living in 2019, have more different ways to sin than ever before in the history of mankind. That's the same old sin. It's just easier because it's 
there in front of us constantly, whether you want it or not. If you're a Christian, you do hate sin. When the Lord brings it before you, you hate it. You repent, you confess, you move on. Once you're His, you're always His. You are His son or daughter. But He doesn't want the things of the world to stain you. We experience it constantly in a barrage of images. And we invite it. It comes, whether it's invited or not, it comes into our homes. People didn't have the visuals and the audio the way that we do today. And you think about it, of course, TV, that's an obvious one. Is TV wrong? No. Internet. Is internet evil? No, not in itself. No. How about books? No. Magazines? No. Those are all can be neutral. They can be good things, can't they? They can be great tools. What's the problem? How about media exposure? Social media. Like all that. And you could see how things could be traps for us all around us constantly. And it's not even being outside driving down the road. Some kind of sign pops up right in your own home when you think about it. A barrage of different things, whether it be images or what have you, or words or stories or what have you. It's inevitable, he says here, that they come. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is tempting us. Flesh is the beachhead for temptation. That's an enemy. And of course the enemy, Satan himself, we know what he did right to Adam and Eve. You look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. Right there in that chapter where there's sin. God speaking to the man. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. There's the first words that we see from Adam after this sin. Wow. He's not only blaming the woman, but he's blaming who? God. The woman you gave to me. You know what? That's the result, the consequence of sin. He has absolute wrong thinking. Before the sin, he was what? He was without sin. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice to be in that position without sin? We live as sinners in a sinful world. We're prone to sin against others. And others are prone to sin against us. It's inevitable. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Is that true? Yeah. The Bible says that. Anything that wants to make us pursue our own pleasures, even at the expense of others, 
or a stumbling block. And then we go back to Luke. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. So we've covered that. We still have quite a few verses to go, don't we? We better move on. But this is the very outset of this passage. It sets the tone for the rest of this section now. If you have that, you're right in the flow of it. Is it making sense coming right off chapter 16 now? As we moved into other verses, this really helps. So he says, but woe to him through whom they come. So you can say, well, yeah, we sin, and you know, that was our nature. It's no longer our nature, though. If you're a Christian, your nature, your old nature, the old man, I guess some people would compare it with, but really that flesh, flesh nature is now been defeated. You are a new person in Christ, but you're still incarcerated in the flesh. We have a problem. Now, he says this, and this is why I say this is dealing with the Pharisees, but even so for a Christian, the consequences are severe even for Christians when they fall into a grievous sin. But he says, woe to him through him that come. Yes, there's going to be sin and temptation all around. Traps. There's going to be scandal on everywhere, isn't there? Scandal on, scandal on. You know, front, backwards, sideways, everywhere. Scandal on is there, but... Woe to him whom through whom this comes here. Now, what's the word woe? Well, Jesus uses it a lot. He uses it against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the hypocrites. Woe to you, right? Matthew 23, that's all you get. Woe to you, everybody. Woe to you, Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. Woe to you. What's woe? It, it means curse, damnation, destruction. Those are not my words. That is what that word means when Jesus says woe. You say, you mean Jesus is saying this? He's the one that said this. This is what He said. Anyone who puts any kind of a hindrance before young Christians, old Christians, anyone who impedes spiritual progress for somebody, is going to get severe divine judgment. That's the idea of woe. And then he uses an illustration. He says, okay. And there was probably one right there as he was teaching them. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that cause any one of these little ones to stumble. So he takes the illustration, goes to an extreme, and he says, that's how serious I'm talking about what it is to make one stumble or sin. You know, this millstone, it would be a massive stone that would be uh, used in, uh, you know, milling... uh, you would have uh, that stone, and of course it, it crushes. It's so massive. You wouldn't be able to pick this millstone up. It's very heavy. What would happen if you, that millstone was tied to a person and they were just thrown into the sea? You go straight down and that's it. It'd be better. Jesus says it'd be better if a millstone, if that heavy, massive stone would be tied to you and you drown in the sea quickly. 
Jesus, what are you saying? You're not kind and loving in this passage here as he's teaching. You know, it's like, what's going on? Well, he's just talked about the rich man of Lazarus. He's just talked about heaven and hell. And he says, if you cause somebody to sin, it would be better if you died right now. Wow. And here's what he's talking. If he's talking about the Pharisees, you see, there's degrees of hell. It's like the flames are turned up higher. If I can put it in that kind of analogy, I don't know what all hell involves. I can tell you that whenever he talks about flames and this, it is absolutely discomforting to even to hear those words. You can imagine what it would be like to live in it. So the rich man was saying, give me just a little bit of water from my tongue. Just a taste off the fingertip. Jesus has said, it's better that he be dead. Better that he die a horrific death right now than he continues to live and accumulates ongoing damnation. He will have higher degrees of damnation if he lives on and causes more people to stumble. Are you getting the idea here? This is how serious it is if you lead people into sinning. The language, I think, is very vivid. And usually he used illustrations that would be right there. I have to think that it was probably there or they knew about it. We think, millstones, what's that? But this is something here that they knew what it was about. Jesus saying it would be beneficial. It would be very good for you It would be to your advantage to die right now. Then you keep on sinning and lead others into the same destruction and damnation. Wow. Okay, this is heavy, right? And I'm not just talking the millstone. (laughs) Jesus has really been talking heavy stuff. I know. I know it's heavy. He talked about it in chapter 16. He said, is this the real Jesus? Is this the Jesus of Nazareth? I always heard that He was loving. Well, He absolutely is. For all of you that sit here today and you have trusted in Christ, you know about His love. And you know you don't deserve it. It was all Him, His grace and His mercy. And that is love. And to offer us an eternal life with Him in the absolute best place we could be, no more sin, no more sorrows, no more torture, no more what suffering, all that that goes with that. Now, in Matthew 13, verse 40, Jesus speaks of parables all the way through in Matthew 13. It's a parable chapter all the way through. Go to Matthew 13, verse 40. So just as the tares, weeds, are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all what? Stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. There are believers who will be with Christ for eternity. All the pleasures forevermore. 
there are unbelievers that will be cast into the furnace of fire. Wow. So you know why? When we go back to Luke, you want to know why Jesus says beware? It'd be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Beware of those who teach lies and live deceptive lives. The hypocritical lives that are quoting the Old Testament yet not living it. So he says, little ones. The end of verse 2, if you cause one of those little ones to stumble. Little ones, God's little ones. If you were to go back to chapter 15 of Luke, just first verse there. Look at this. Here's the people following Him now. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners, what were they doing? They were coming near Him to what? To listen to Him. For those who have ears, hear. These are the ones that are unrighteous. They're sinners. Who's unrighteous? Who are sinners? Everybody. Pharisees, though, they're not there to hear Him. And other people, they're not necessarily there to hear. They're there to criticize Him and turn others away from Him. Do you see what's happening there? He's talking about the little ones, the ones who recognize that they are sinners and they're there listening to Jesus. They're following Him now. Remember Jesus hung out with the sinners and He ate with them? What did the Pharisees think of that? It's the worst thing you could do. And they belittled Jesus because of that. He saves sinners. Why did He come to earth? To save sinners. That's me. That's you. came to save sinners by that cross. So the little ones. It's God's little children. He has a tender concern for His children. So really, the little ones would be all believers, especially those young believers, new believers. Okay, we've done point number one. We go to verse 3 and 4, and we go to the second one now. And this is a high standard for forgiveness. We just talked about sin, didn't we? And bringing others into sin. He now goes into that great topic of forgiveness. Did you know that it is a gift whenever God reveals to us and we realize that we have sinned against a holy God? That's bad news. The good news is is that He offers forgiveness of that sin never to be held against you for eternal life. So, doesn't it make sense after sin that he says forgiveness? He starts off, be on your guard. Check your, your own selves out. Look at yourself first. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So now we're talking about somebody. Maybe you didn't make them sin, but somebody sins. Somebody else made them sin or whatever. They made themselves sin. Okay, they sinned. What does he say? He says, first of all, examine yourselves. Beware. Be on your guard. Look at yourself. Examine yourselves first. 
how easy it is to focus on the visible, the sins of others, rather than examining our own hearts. And we could, you know, stand up and say, and we should, we should be saying, you know, God is a holy God, and abortion is wrong. And we mean it. We can say that, and, and that's absolutely right. Homosexuality, with all the Scripture, with all that's truth in here, is wrong. Fornication is wrong. We know all those obvious things. Idolatry and adultery. All the things that go on. Things that damage our bodies. Whether it be drugs, alcohol, goes on and on. People are looking for those things to get satisfaction in life. Do those things bring it to them? No, obviously not, because they just have to keep going back for more of it. And yeah, they get destroyed. What's happening here? Well, we have to first we say, yeah, I can see those sins, but examine ourselves because there are acceptable sins in our own lives. So what kind of acceptable sins? What do you mean? Well, we can have our own self-righteousness. We can have greed, ambition, pride. We make our own idols. We're idol factories, as John Calvin said. We're all idol. We, we have factories that just make up these idols. Anything that comes in front of God. Now, when we do that, then what are we supposed to do? Well, it's the Christian's business to restore the sinner. Christ seeked to restore the sinners, didn't He? That's what we're about. If somebody sins, another believer, what do you do? You go to them, you respond to the sinning brother, and we're talking about something, you know, it's not every sin that you think is sin. Because if we did that, that's all we'd ever do. We'd be addressing each other's sin. Because we still battle that. But certain sins are grievous and they give a bad sore to the church. And in Matthew 18, what does it say? Go to that brother who has made an offense, made a scandal, and go to him and see if you can correct him. Address that offense. If he doesn't do it, what does it say? Then bring another along as a witness. And if the brother still goes and does not repent from that, then you bring it to the whole church. If they continue with that, then they are to be put out of the church until they what? Until they repent. The whole idea is not to kick them out of the church, not to make somebody mad, but to what? To restore them. It's a matter of love. If they continue in that sin, they're going to destroy themselves. They're going to destroy other people. It can be a good thing. You know what the Pharisees did? Well, they didn't do that. Yeah, they would just kick them out of the temple. Synagogues. What else would they do? They would shun them. Never to speak to them again. They're bad. They're evil. They're wicked. There's nothing good in them. Never will be. Boom, they're done with them. We can't make that kind of decision, can we? What do we want? We want them to be restored. That's the kind of love that Christians have. Look at Galatians 6. Verse 
verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, caught in a trap, boom. You who are spiritual, who, who are those? The, that's the pastors, the elders, the deacons? No. Anyone who is reading the Word of God, praying to the Lord, growing in the Lord, you who are spiritual, that's a Christian, isn't it? Restore such a one. How? So you did this, you did that. In a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself. That's where it starts. So that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. It's the law of Christ. Go to that one so that they would repent, that they would be restored. That is the idea. James 5, 19 and 20, it talks about that. We talked about Matthew 18. In Luke 17, here he's saying, uh, if your brother sins... Do you remember the, the two brothers? One was the prodigal son, and he had an older brother. Who was the one that was righteous? Well, the Pharisees would have said who? The older brother. Remember the younger one? That son came back, and his father accepted him, brought him to him. Kill the fatted calf. What did the brother do? Stayed away. Because his brother was unrighteous. And so, therefore, he is what? Righteous. Do you know who he represented? The Pharisees. He was lost. The lost son, the prodigal son, is now found. But the older brother who thought was he was righteous is lost in his own self Righteousness, even though he didn't run away and take the money, he took the money probably, but he stayed right there, made him look good. Pharisees seem to disown their Jewish brethren. Jesus says here, Be on guard if your brother sins, there's rebuke, but there's balance. It says here, Rebuke him. Use the Word of God to say, hey, listen, that's wrong. Brother, don't you know where this will lead you? I don't want to see you go down that path. And this is going to hurt other people. It's going to hurt people in the church. It's going to be in their direct family. It's going to hurt in all people around them. It's a stumbling block, isn't it? But he says, hey, listen, confess, repent of this sin, and move on. You don't even have to go to church discipline. Matter of fact, it doesn't go to church discipline even with the second person. That is part of church discipline. It's, it's not kicking out. They're not even kicked out even when they're brought to the church. It's just that whenever they are disobedient and they spurn counsel and good godly counsel and biblical counsel and coming from the truth and they still spurn it, after so many times it's like saying, you're hurting us. Please, Go. When you see that it's wrong, repent and come back. We're here for you. Do you see the beauty in that? That's biblical. That's right. We're responsible to correct those whom we know. A sinning brother is still our brother. 
And so that's why Jesus would be saying that. Take it seriously. So, to continue on, what's the goal of rebuke? Repentance. Goal of rebuke that they would also, that as they repent, that people now would say, you're forgiven. I forgive you. Your offense that you had to me, I forgive you. I forget about it. It's gone. Just like what God did for us. We can never be more like Christ than when we forgive somebody who has wronged us. You want to be like Christ? One of the best examples is to forgive somebody who has made an offense to you. Maybe a terrible offense. Maybe saying certain words. Maybe doing something. And you can say here, if he sins against you, or, or uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Is that the order that it is given? I think he's right. They have to be. If they're sinned, then they need to be rebuked, but then they repent. But on the cross, it worked differently, didn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That could be for us, couldn't it? He forgave us at the cross, knowing and also make it it's part of his will that we would be a part of his family. Christ calls us to look upon the hurt and the pain that we gave him at the cross. It was our sins that pained him. And to know that he has what? He's forgiven us. We're right at the end here. Matter of fact, go overboard on this forgiveness. And if He sins against you seven times a day, what does it say? But, 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 I already forgave Him and He went ahead and did the same thing, so therefore I can't forgive Him anymore. What does He say? Seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive Him. That's really hard. What did Peter say? You know, like seven times? Is that how much we're supposed to forget? And Jesus says what? Seventy times seven. Four hundred and ninety times. And he didn't even mean that. Just keep on going with it, with that number. Wow. That's the kind of forgiveness that each one of us is given. You're in his family. It's eternity that we're talking about. It's forgiven forever. Um, We could question his motives. It doesn't sound like he's really meaning this. Just forgive and forgive and forgive. Yeah, but you don't know what they said to me. You don't know the words and, and everything that he said about you. You just don't know who they really are. Maybe not. What does the Bible say? Forgive. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, 490 times. On and on. Forgive him. Say, "Ah, that doesn't make sense. Okay, go up to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, this really doesn't make sense. I'm going to go ahead and not forgive him. Because you you must admit something else here. No, no, that's exactly what. You know what it means to forgive? To dismiss something. 
uh, it means that it's going to leave. The matter is dropped. Uh, not to bring it up again. It means to release it. Then the next week they sin again. You say, what are you doing? Uh, I am sorry. I'm sorry. And they, they confess to the Lord. And you say, I forgive you, but I never want to see your face again. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that, did He? We are to restore the wounded relationship. Sometimes repentance can lack genuineness and sincerity. You know, children, you know, when they've done something, they can really be insincere. You know, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. You know, the whole tone and the attitude, and you know better. Jesus teaches that forgiveness must be immediately granted on the basis of a verbal confession alone. Wow, really. You do have to be wise and give, use the wisdom that God gives, but He's, he's saying here that forgiveness is like being like Christ. And we could go deeper into this, but you could say somebody is making a habit of the sin and the sins, and it's difficult to forgive. And they do it repeatedly, and then they come back and they confess, Would you forgive me? Say, you've done it four times. I thought we forgot about that. Jesus teaches that forgiveness is granted by faith and not by the works of the offended party because we finish up with this and I promise we're right at the end. Verse 5 and 6 is going to go by real quick. Because here is where the disciples are really confused and you might be too. You can say, I'm supposed to forgive somebody. It doesn't even seem like they really are really asking forgiveness. What? What? How do I do that? Here's the answer. Apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, if you're reading this and you're saying, how does that fit in with what we just talked about? Oh, it does, doesn't it? Do you see now how this connects with all the other joints? There's sin. There's forgiveness, point two. Point three, believing. Christ. Apostle said to the Lord, okay, you're going to have to increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, in literal senses, are we talking this mulberry tree and that kind of thing, right? The mustard seed, you know, it's good pictures. And, and probably there was a mustard seed plant, a mustard plant there, and then, of course, the little mustard seed that's so, so tiny. Mulberry tree is probably right there as he speaks. Could be. Take that and, you know, uproot it, plant it in the sea and that kind of thing. If you just have faith, well... Teaching of Jesus regarding forgiveness are really hard words to hear, especially if you have been offended. Really hard to receive. And the disciples asked Jesus, okay, you're going to have to increase my faith because there is no way that I can forgive somebody who has just done that. And you know what he says? See, that they're presupposing a wrong premise here. Now, you know, there's a lot of times when I say, Lord, I really need to have more faith here. Sometimes that can be a good prayer. But honestly, you already have the faith 
to do it. You already have the Word of God, the Spirit of God there to do this, to forgive you. You say, well, I don't feel like it. My emotions are not in this. It doesn't matter about what you feel like. Even if you feel like you would be a hypocrite, what does He say? He says, do it. That's obedience. Presupposes that I'll only be able to obey if I have a lot of faith. I don't have that faith. And so therefore, I can't forgive. They thought they needed a great quantity of faith to accomplish this forgiveness that Jesus has just talked about. Seventy times seven, that kind of thought. Are you seeing where that fits in now when they say, increase our faith? It sounds like they're changing the subject. You know, he's been on the subject all the way through. And he says, okay, you're going to have to give me a lot of faith, Jesus. You don't know what I've been through. But they were not so sure that they had enough faith to accomplish this kind of forgiveness. It says you don't need a great deal of faith to accomplish great things. This is a great thing to do. One of the best and hardest things to do is to forgive somebody who has affronted you in a very visible, verbal way. And so, even a little faith, and if you're a believer, you have a measure of faith. Now you want that faith to be strengthened, don't you? But that faith is what God has given us to believe Him and then to believe things that are impossible to do. How can you believe, make me believe that I am to forgive them even if they say they're repentant? I cannot do that right now. Jesus says, do it right now. This is living the faith, isn't it? He says, I don't care about your big faith. You have the faith to accomplish even taking, you know, like a little mustard seed, that's how small it is. Take a mulberry tree and uproot it. It has huge roots. It's almost impossible to take that up and just cast it all the way into the Mediterranean Sea, which is probably, who knows, maybe uh, 40, 50 miles away. Jesus says you have faith. Even a little faith will do it if it's real faith. I urge us, so far as it depends on us, to pursue peace and reconciliation with people who have offended you. God will bless you as you seek to obey Him. Going back to what we've looked at, because of our sin, there is the cross. And based upon the cross, which is called the stumbling block, that's what we found in the first part, right? We found out that Christ and the cross is the stumbling block. The supreme example of who and what forgiveness is, is Christ though, at the cross. Did you see where we've gone back at now? We look at the cross, we see our sin. We look at the cross, what else do we see? We see our forgiveness. And forgiveness, the greatest act of forgiveness that's been displayed was on the cross because that's where the sin was cast as far as the east is from the west. And that's where, when we look at that, and as we see that, and as He grants faith to us and repentance, we see that that sacrifice of the cross is what changes us. We no longer want to sin. We no longer want to be a stumbling block. 
to others because of the forgiveness that Christ had at the cross. And we just trust in that and obey. And when He says, do this, it's impossible. It's I can't do that. And He says, yes, you can. It is possible. You can do it. And I expect you to do it. All in the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the cross. Anything that's impossible, look at the cross. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank You for this time that we've had. Thank You for Your Word that is connected in all aspects. And it shows us how we are to live our lives and to represent Jesus Christ. Whether it be from keeping from people from sinning, keeping ourselves from sinning, even going to the point of correcting them because they can be restored. Our forgiveness of them and what it comes down to is our faith in Christ, trusting in Him and all that He says. Now as we get ready for this communion that we're going to take, for all your believers, Lord, all believers are confessing that you are the bread of life. You are the fruit of the vine. And as we participate in these elements that represent who Christ is, we're giving up things in our lives that seem so impossible to do and we're giving them up to you to make them come alive in our lives. And that honors you. It glorifies you. Thank you for your word and your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.